right, while everybody is finding their seat, just a reminder, a couple of announcements. Chafer Seminary will begin uh, their registration for their fall term on Saturday, August the 1st. And they're offering about 13 different courses plus their self-paced courses, which must all be taken within the parameters of the, of the semester. And if you belong, to, if anyone belongs to a church that contributes, I think it's about $2,500 a year, 3000 a year, somewhere in that range, I forget, then you are able to take up to two courses a semester basically for free. That means if you go to West Houston Bible Church, you can take up to two courses a semester basically for free. So you can go to chafer.edu to see what is available. The other announcement is that due to a lack of nursery volunteers, we ask parents to be able to supervise those who are in the nursery uh, if, you, uh, if you come and bring your kids. So those are the announcements. One minute while I get things straightened out here. There. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord. The term fellowship indicates two that are walking together, two or more that are walking together toward a common goal. That goal for the Christian life is to be like Christ, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so God is is through the Holy Spirit working in our lives to conform us to the image of Christ. And when we are walking by the Spirit, he is working on that. And when we sin, he is working on reminding us of our sins so that we can get back in fellowship. So we need to focus on confession of sin for recovery after sin and so that we can continue to grow in the spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for all that you've given us. And above all, we're thankful that we have the freedom in this nation, that we have a government that recognizes that our freedoms are given to us by you, and they are not given to us by government. And we have the freedom to worship, the freedom to study the word, to teach the word, to proclaim the gospel. And Father, we know that there are millions in this country who hate that. They despise Christianity. They despise you. They have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And they are gaining in political sway and political influence. 
Father, we pray that you would restrain that evil, that we might continue to freely proclaim the gospel, that those who do not know Christ yet as Savior may hear the wonderful good news that Jesus has died for them and they can have eternal life by simply believing, trusting in him for their salvation. Father, now as we study your word and we study about what is going on in terms of current events, we pray that you'd give us discernment, insight, wisdom, skill, so that we can walk wisely in this time and that we can make whatever preparations we think we need to make and that above all we can prepare our souls, prepare our spiritual lives for whatever may come ahead. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in our study on 2 Samuel on Tuesday nights, but for the last three or four lessons, I've been focusing on a, an application of revolution on the basis of our study of the um, uh, Absalom Rebellion and the Sheba Rebellion. Last time, we brought that up to current events, and when I let, finished last week, I was trying to get it all in, I thought, well, I'm done. Good, we'll move on in Second Samuel. And then I got home and I started looking at all my notes and all the things I didn't get around to. And I thought, no, I think I need uh, one more Tuesday night to go through some of the uh, current events simply because uh, this has to be out there. People need to understand this. There are uh, too many Christians, too many pastors uh, that have been deceived and duped by the uh, world philosophies that swirl around us, and they have bought into these things. They have not been uh, transforming their minds by the Word of God, but they have been uh, conformed to the world system. And so we have to understand this. And so part of what I'm looking at tonight is in terms of the tactics of a rebellion, and we are witnessing an attempt at a revolution in our country. And one of the features of this revolution is something that sounds very good, but just like the appearance of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, taking a bite out of it will certainly create Uh, consequences that will be destructive for generations, and that idea is the idea of social justice. First Chronicles 12.32 makes an interesting observation, somewhat cryptic, but something that we should pay attention to. Describes the sons of Issachar. Remember, Issachar was one of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel that these sons of Issachar had understanding of the times. They had discernment as to what was happening in God's plan in Israel as they looked out on the world scene and understood the enemies of Israel and understood the plan of God. Then they were oriented to how to apply the word of God to their generation. They knew what Israel ought to do. Now, this is important for all of us. This is a prayer that we should all pray, that we may be wise and discerning like uh, the sons of Issachar, understanding the times. What is going on in the world around us? I've taught this before several times when we've gone through Romans 12, uh, 2, that we are not to be conformed to the world. Well, to some degree, we have to understand what the characteristics of the world system 
uh, what the characteristics are now so that we can be prepared not to be sucked into them because Satan makes them extremely attractive. And there's always peer pressure, there's social pressure, there's economic pressure. Today we see even pressure related to people's jobs. We have seen reports in the news. For example, there was an executive with uh, Boeing uh, North America that lost his job. He was a former fighter pilot, flew F-16s, and uh, they uh, somehow something was reported that he said or wrote uh, some 25, 30 years ago, and he lost his job because it wasn't politically correct today. And there are numerous examples of that that are going on in our current world where people who have posted something on social media maybe 10 years ago and now that gets resurrected and they uh, lose their job or they are suddenly hounded by people who disagree with them uh, when it was something very uh, normal to say uh, 10, 15 years ago or 50 years ago and now uh, there is a self-righteousness here. Remember, self-righteousness always has its source in arrogance. And self-righteousness and self-righteous arrogance always lead to destruction. And one of the things that concerns me deeply about what we're facing today is that we do not see the biblicists, the leaders who really believe in the Bible, coming to the forefront to provide solutions, to be willing to bring people together to work on solid solutions. Instead, people are divided. And remember, Paul describes the, in describing the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, 19 to 21, describes uh, division as a work of the flesh, indicating the sin nature is having a heyday. And so we need to understand the characteristics of the cosmic system, the world system around us. First Chronicles 12:32. Now another verse, one that I was reading the other day as I was thinking about where we're going in 2 Samuel. We have finished 2 Samuel 20 and we're about to go into the last few chapters of 2 Samuel. And as I read ahead, I came across this particular verse in 2 Samuel 23.3. And as I read this, I thought this is a foundational verse that we need to discuss in light of the whole claims of the social justice movement today. David writes this near the end of his life. He is talking about what God has revealed to him, revealed to him as the king of Israel, the king of the 12 tribes, the one God chose and God anointed, and God is the one who taught him about uh, how to lead and how to be a leader and what his priorities should be. And this is who the phrase Rock of Israel describes. It is a name that is given to God over and over again throughout the Old Testament. He is the rock. He is our rock. Uh, our rock is uh, a stronger God than any other God. The rock of Israel, David says, spoke to me. And look at what he says. He who rules over men must be just. Now think about that a minute. He's telling David, who at the time that David reigned was probably the most powerful monarch in the ancient Near East. 
Uh, it was a time when Egypt had not returned to power since the Exodus. It was a time when there was a nadir in the uh, powers base, uh, or, or, uh, the powers of the Mesopotam- uh, Mesopotamian uh, Valley. It was a time when the Hittites were not at, at, in their strength. David is probably the greatest ruler on the planet at that time. And God says, he who rules over men, that would apply to any leader. That would apply to any, anybody from a teacher in a classroom to an officer in the military, to a non-commissioned officer in the military, to a uh, mayor of a city, to the governor of a state, to the president, to a king, to anyone who is in a position of authority over men. He who rules over men must be just. The word just is extremely important to understand. This is the Hebrew word tzaddik. And it indicates uh, just relates to a standard. And it can be translated as just or it can be translated as righteous. When it is translated as righteous, it has to do, uh, one of its meanings is has to do with the standard, the standard that God has. When we speak of God being righteous, then that refers to his, the, the standard of his righteousness. When it is talking about the application of a standard, then it is translated as just or justice. So tzaddik indicates justice. So it says a man must be just. He must conform to a standard. Well, where do we get the standard? If you are David, where do you get this standard? For the Christian, we understand that the standard comes from God. The standard is ultimately God's own character. He defines righteousness. He defines justice. And so for the Christian, we look, we do not look anywhere else other than God. And remember, David is the king of Israel. He is the king of, uh, over God's chosen people. And when God brought them out of Egypt, the first thing he did that was going to be necessary to have a nation, to have a nation, you have to have three things. They may seem obvious to you, but we need to state them. First of all, you have to have a group of people. Second, you have to have a land, a place for those people to live. And third is you have to have rules for organizing those people and administering those people. So when God brought them out of Egypt, they were just former slaves who had just been freed. He's taking them to the land that he will give them where they will have their nation. And the first stop is at Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. We refer to it as the law of Moses. The Hebrew word is Torah, which is instruction, God's instructions on how they should live as a nation. And so that is the standard. They are to conform to that standard of the Mosaic law. Failure to conform to that standard will bring injustice. And uh, uh, when you conform to that standard, then there will be justice. Now notice that in the next phrase, there is something of an apposition there. That means that it is further defining something about being just, that this person who rules over men must be just. And then it picks up that verb rule 
and it says something else about it that tells us that this second thing works in tandem with the first thing. Justice works in tandem and is really grounded on the fear of God. Proverbs is the book in the Bible that really develops the concept of the fear of God. We have it in many other places, but the fear of the Lord written in Proverbs 1 is the beginning of wisdom. It is the foundation of understanding and knowledge. Fear of the Lord means a recognition that God is the ultimate authority and that we are going to subordinate our thinking and our lives and our decision-making to the rule of God. When we fail to live up to the standard of God's rule, no matter who we are, no matter what nation we are, no matter what color our skin, no matter what our economic situation, no matter what our gender is, when we fail to conform to God's rule, we are not just. It doesn't matter if that's what's popular. It doesn't matter if that's what everybody else wants. What matters is that we must be walking under the authority of God. And so we must remember that what God expects of a ruler is justice, and that means he must walk in the fear of God. Now, we have a little problem here, don't we? And that problem is that throughout history, there have been a few men, a few leaders, who have at times walked in the fear of the Lord. David was one of them. Solomon did in his early years, but then he was influenced by his many foreign wives to, uh, to go into idolatry. And he, once he did that, he was no longer wise, he did no, no longer rule justly, and he did not rule in the fear of the Lord. And then we see that throughout the history of the southern kingdom, because after, after Solomon, the nation split as part of God's judgment on Solomon and on his descendants for their disobedience, the ten northern tribes never produced a good ruler. They never produced a just ruler. They never produced a ruler that was walking with the Lord. They were all uh, wrong. They were all idolaters, and they all... Uh, walked in the sin of Jeroboam, the first king, who set up an idol. Remember the golden calf in Bethel and up in Dan. Uh, and so they walked, they all sinned in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. But in the south, there were a few. There were maybe a half a dozen that never rose to the level of greatness as David, but there were a few like Hezekiah, a couple of others, Josiah, that did walk humbly before the Lord and judgment. In Micah, Micah was a prophet about the same time as Isaiah, and Micah says, uh, the Lord says to through Micah, he has shown you, O man, what is good. God has revealed to us what that standard is. God has revealed to us that which he expects, and it's stated clearly in three senses right here in this verse. And what does the Lord require of you? Now think about this, because when we look at the world around us and we look at the turmoil, we look at the chaos, we look at everything that's going on, we have to, as Christians, it is incumbent upon us to think biblically, not to be attracted to these various human viewpoint schemes that seek to bring in some sort of perfection. And we'll talk about this a little more. But he has shown you what does the Lord require of you. Number one, I have translated this so that um, it catch the, catches the sense of the Hebrew better. 
in the, most translations, it says something like, but to do justice. Now, that means to act in accordance with justice. Now, the word that is translated justice here is not the word Sadiq, which we just looked at. It is the word mishpat. And the word mishpat has the idea of a, an external law. Sometimes it's translated as an ordinance. Sometimes it's translated as, as a statute. And it has that idea of the, the laws that are set forth by a governing authority. So we are to act in accordance with the law. We can't be lawless. Now, as we've studied in the past few weeks, if there are laws that are uh, contrary to God's command, then that's the only time we really have the right to, to rebel and to disobey. And when we do, we do it in goodness, kindness, and gentleness as long as it's possible. Uh, we act in accordance with justice, with the law of the land. So for Israel, that's acting in accordance with the Mosaic law. Secondly, it is to love chesed. We've studied that word many times, and it's translated uh, in different ways. Here it's translated usually as something like mercy, but that doesn't catch the meaning of this word. It is to walk in faithfulness to God, in loyal faithfulness to him. And so that is the idea. So I've translated it to love faithfulness, those who are faithful to God and to his law. And third, to walk indicates your lifestyle, uh, humbly indicates your mental attitude, that you're not operating on arrogance. You're not focused on me, me, me all the time. You're focused on serving God, for we are saved to serve him, and we are not to be distracted by the issues that are going on around us that will take our focus off of walking with him and put our focus on our own circumstances and trying to solve them uh, apart from God's, uh, God's word. Now, as we look at this passage, we discovered that we are to walk in justice. That means that the Christian, based on Micah 6.8, and Second Samuel 23, 3, and numerous other passages, the Christian has no option but to love justice. We are to love justice. We are to uh, support justice and support the law. We are not to be lawless. We are to stand for justice for everyone. But today, we run into a popular phrase becoming more popular called social justice. We need to ask this question what exactly social justice is, and we need to determine if this is something that is biblical. And so we have to analyze some of the various things that go along with this because we don't want to be like many Christians over the years who have bought into different ideas that really weren't biblical. They sounded good, but they really weren't biblical, and so we bought into sort of a Trojan horse. Once you swallow the bait, then you're hooked. So I'm switching metaphors there on you. See, social justice is sort of a tagline, a slogan, and it represents something of an ideology that lies behind a lot of the social unrest that we have been seeing. 
uh, the various uh, riots and demonstrations that we have been seeing, the antagonism towards uh, uh, towards government, civil unrest, things of this nature are all uh, influenced by this concept of social justice. And we've seen, the, seen this a lot, not only in the past few months, but also in the past several years has this really come to the forefront, although the language and the terminology goes back almost, uh, almost a century. But, and before we get into an understanding of biblical justice versus social justice, we must examine a few things that I covered last time to set our minds on our framework for evaluation. The first point I made last time at the end, I talked about one of the many different organizations. I'm not just singling them out, but they are in the forefront right now, but one of the many different organizations and this is the organization that is identified as Black Lives Matter. Now, there are several different organizations that are uh, called Black Lives Matter. There's an international organization. There's some uh, organizations that use that name in different countries. And this is actually a movement that began after the 2013 shooting death of Trayvon Martin in Florida. And uh, he, uh, it was, and then later, when there was a police shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and as a result of that, there were uh, three women who came together to begin this organization: uh, Patrice Khan Kulors, Opal Tometi, who is originally Nigerian, come, came to the United States, and Alicia Garza, and. One of the things that I showed last time was a video of her 2015 interview when she says, quote, the first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. So what she is saying there is there is an ideology that shapes the decision-making and the actions of Black Lives Matter. Uh, she said, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Now, what she means by that is that they're educated. She says that they're trained Marxists. They've been trained in the Marxist ideology. They have been trained in the Marxist methodology. And that is what shapes their whole organization that they, that they started. So one of the first things that I want to do is to evaluate Marxism because this is the ideology of Black Lives Matter. Now, there are a lot of people since uh, the George Floyd uh, killing that have used uh, this phrase because they don't want to be thought of as racist. That's part of what is going on here in the strategy is if you don't say black lives matter, then you are a racist and you are part of the problem and not part of the solution. But as we have seen, the Bible does not single out any particular race other than the Jewish race, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The rest of us are just called Gentiles. And there's no real distinction between us, and there should not be. 
And as I've taught the past uh, month or so, as we've been in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, is that in the body of Christ, there is no ethnic distinction. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. In other words, neither our economic status nor our gender status nor our ethnicity has anything to do with our spiritual life. And therefore, anyone who puts ethnicity economic standing, class, education, any of these uh, temporal realities ahead of their unity in the body of Christ is basically being a racist. We have to have a biblical understanding of this, and we can't let the world define the terms for us. We have to stick with what the Bible says. And the Bible says that, that in the Old Testament, prior to Christ, the Jews were God's chosen people based on their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant. They're still God's people, but they're under divine discipline right now. Uh, they're out of, the, out of the land. The temple no longer exists. It was destroyed as the first temple was by God for judgment on the nation. But that God has not given up on them, and God will restore them to the land. But until then, God has a second group of people called the church. And we are members of the church, and we are called to a higher standard. We are expected to live differently from the rest of the world and to live our lives according to a different set of standards. What the world does may seem effective, but that doesn't mean that we can adopt it. The end never justifies the means. And yet we see today a lot of Christians who are justifying property destruction, justifying demonstrations, justifying riots. And uh, as I pointed out previously, none of these are the methodologies that should characterize a believer in Christ, a child of God, a member of the royal family. Uh, We are to be obedient and show respect to government, uh, even when that government may be uh, the worst government in the world. Uh, Both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter stated this in Romans 13 and in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, to honor the king, that all uh, governments are instituted by God. And even the uh, tyrants, the evil tyrants, Nero was psychotic. Nero was the emperor in Rome when Paul wrote, Paul wrote earlier when he wasn't quite as psychotic as he was later. Peter wrote later. Both of them knew that the government of Rome was hostile to Christianity, and yet they made these blanket statements that it's the basis for order, as we've seen in our study. So let's break this down according to just worldview. On the left, we have the worldview of Christianity. It starts with our view of God, ultimate reality. God is a personal, infinite God who is perfectly righteous and just. So that must become the framework for all of our discussions about justice and righteousness is the person of God. Second, we realize man is created. He is in the image of God, but he has a problem. Because of the fall, he is sinful and corrupt. And no matter what we do, we are always going to fail. We are going to have failures. We're going to have people in government who are failures. This is one of the reasons we have a difficult system of government, uh, which appears to many to be inefficient, because we have checks and balances, because the founding fathers understood that 
that people were all corrupt, and so they recognized that people were susceptible to uh, to temptation, people were susceptible to corruption, and that they needed to be watched. And so it was a system of government designed to make changes very slowly and with some difficulty because they realized that they had to protect the liberty of the individual, okay? So we have to understand that. That means that that we can expect various systems, whether they involve teachers, whether they involve pastors, whether they involve police, whether they involve politicians, we can expect that there will be those who are controlled by their sin nature and create problems, that we can never overcome that until we have a perfect government. And we're told in Scripture that that perfect government will not come until Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom. But then we're also told that that kingdom, though perfect, with perfect government, perfect education, uh, a perfect environment, is going to be populated by those who are born during the millennial kingdom who have sin natures, and at the end of the kingdom, they will demonstrate that the real problem isn't economics, it's not class, it's not education. The problem isn't justice, it isn't government. The problem is sin. And millions and millions and millions are going to rebel against the righteous, perfect rule of Jesus Christ because they have rebelled against God. And I pointed out that that's the essence of rebellion. It starts with the human heart in rebellion to God in arrogance. The only solution to sin is redemption of Christ, the gospel, where we are free to trust in him for our salvation. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. It is a free gift. The Christian view of history is... Uh, a linear kingdom. We are moving, th- in, we are in progress. It may not look like it to some people because they have a different definition of progress, but we are moving towards that goal in each dispensation, each age, until we come to the kingdom. And the causation, that which causes it to go forward, is the providence of God. It is God who is in control. Now, we need to contrast this with Marxism. Marxism, as a worldview, rejects God. For Marx, religion was the opiate of the masses because religion sort of was like a narcotic that would uh, anesthetize people to the problems that they had in life and to the difficulties they had in life. And so they wouldn't do what was necessary to rise up and change things. It was a worldview based on naturalism. It doesn't start with God. It starts with eternal matter. And so there's no basis for ever coming up with the idea of spirit. How can spirit evolve from that which is material? It cannot. Uh, We can't even explain how organic, anything organic came along from that which was inorganic. And so the only solution is some kind of accidental electrical discharge on some goo that somehow brought some kind of organic life into uh, into existence, and that is that. And if that's the basis, then there's no distinction of people. We're all accidents. Nobody's important in the Bible. We're all created in the image and likeness of God. So everybody has value, significance, importance. 
Every African-American has value, significance, and importance and must be treated with respect. And the same is true for every other ethnicity. And I know that that has been deemed a racist statement, but truth is truth. And to reject that truth because of a political agenda or because of how you feel is just arrogance, and that is self-destructive. And that will never lead to a positive solution. Arrogance never produces anything but more division and more hostility, and that is self-destructive. The problem in Marxism is uh, uh, economics. It is the oppressed classes. He's the one who came up with the idea that there are different classes and that we have to take the working class and uh, there will not be uh, real happiness and they won't discover who they are until they are elevated to a position uh, where they are in control and not the oppressed class. So he introduces that concept of oppression, and that's critical in Marxist economic in Marxist economics, um, and it go- goes forward on the basis of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So it's always struggle. There's one person who has this view, another person who has the opposite view, and they come together and fight, and eventually they reach some sort of agreement, and there's a synthesis, and that moves on to the next level. And that, new, that synthesis then becomes the next thesis, and that thesis is countered by its opposite. And so it's like Darwinism. It's always struggle. It's always fight. And it's ultimately going to produce some sort of utopia. He borrowed the idea of a linear history from the Bible. That's why you'll sometimes see Marxism uh, stated as a, as a Christian heresy because it stole certain ideas. Uh, The idea of a future utopia, worker's paradise, is a counterfeit of the future millennial kingdom. So what we see here is that these are mutually exclusive worldviews. You can't hold to one and hold to the other without having some great internal conflict. In fact, if you try to join Christianity to anything in the Marxist column, you destroy your Christianity, you destroy your spiritual life, and it will lead to nothing but unhappiness and self-destruction in your life. Karl Marx says, A being only considers himself independent when he stands on his own feet. And he only stands on his own feet when he owes his existence to himself. See, there's no God. You are your own person, and you need to assert yourself. And only when you assert yourself and throw off the chains and shackles of oppression will you be able to realize who you are. And so uh, Marx is known because he divides people into classes. And what happens when uh, you get the development under Gramsci... Antonin Gramsci, an Italian communist in the early part of the 20th century, uh, takes this. He's not so big on economics, but he's emphasizing history and culture and art and music and some other things. And he divides people into identity groups. That's just uh, a, a twist of nomenclature for Marx's class classes. So for cultural Marxism, as that is known, what you now have is you have oppressed groups. Uh, they are oppressed by white people. 
This is what is known as white privilege. It doesn't matter. You may be a white person who grew up in a, maybe you were adopted and you grew up in a black home. Maybe you are the most ignorant, backward, impoverished uh, hillbilly from Appalachia. But if you're white, you have white privilege because you're part of the class. It doesn't matter what decisions you make. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter if you're white and you grew up in a black family. It doesn't matter how much you love your adopted siblings and adopted family and your adopted culture. Because you're white, you have white privilege. You're part of the class. It's not about individuals. And we studied how the first divine institution, which God established in the Garden of Eden, is individual responsibility. God focuses on the individual. Marx focuses on the class, the group, the identity, whatever, whatever that may be. So when we look back at history, as I ended last time talking about revolutions, you have the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, and what's going on today. They are grounded in atheism, a rejection of the God of the Bible and, what the, God, and the plan of the God of the Bible. And so that means that, number one, it's always grounded in arrogance. Number two, if it is based on, ice and on atheism, it is religion. Remember, if theism, the belief in a God, is a religious belief, then its opposite must also be a religious belief. So ah, the A is from the Greek, which indicates the opposite. We use in English the prefix un, uh, but you don't say an untheist. He is an atheist. He does not believe in God. He has no God. And so the uh, atheist is hostile to the plan of God because he has rejected God. Thus, he, is, he rejects what the Bible says, that man is basically corrupt and evil, and he believes man is basically good and improvable. Uh, third, he attempts to create a utopia. And this is what you find in economic Marxism and cultural Marxism and in, in many other worldviews as well, the attempt to overcome... Uh, what seems to be the injustice of this world, the unfairness of this world, by creating some utopia. And in the process, there is a rejection of law uh, that is and a desire to supplant it and overturn the civilization or the culture, and they use chaos and violence to accomplish that. And ultimately, when you ask, where do you get your standards? Because there's no external universal. They get them from themselves. And so uh, they have no eternal absolute. So this is a perfect uh, development from postmodernism. Postmodernism said there are no absolutes. And so they don't have any, any real absolutes other than just this philosophy which they have invented. And what we see today is really a toxic brew of a number of different terms. I'm not going to teach through all of them. Cultural Marxism, I've touched on a little bit now. It's a twist on economic Marxism, but it is taking over education, taking over uh, the legal system, uh, taking over uh, various aspects of culture, changing the norms that we see in a culture that we would define 
as biblical norms and biblical standards. For example, individual responsibility, uh, individual freedom, uh, marriage, family, government, nations, and nationalism. Those are all rejected in their place. You have cultural Marxism. You have identity politics, which puts the emphasis on uh, the group that a person belongs to rather than what they have done or not done individually. Uh, critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory is, uh, was invented by the same man that, in, that invented black liberation theology. All liberation theology is ultimately Marxist. All, all liberation theology is based on, on Marxism, whether it's Palestinian liberation theology or uh, whether it is uh, a, a um, uh, Latin American, uh, Latin American um, liberation theology or whatever the mode may be. You have all of these different forms of liberation theology. And one of his close friends was a man named Jeremiah Wright, who was um, uh, Barack Obama's pastor. And he and Jeremiah Wright went down to, uh, went down to Cuba and had uh, quite a, spent quite a bit of time with Fidel Castro understanding what they had done in Cuba so that they could bring that back to the United States and they could instill that into their people. Uh, so that he is, that's the significance of critical race theory and it teaches about the, um, the, uh, that the evil is whiteness. We'll get to that in just a minute. Also, intersectionality, when, when this is, evaluates a person, so if you've got one issue, let's say you're a woman, well, you have a problem because you're looked down upon because you're a woman, but if you're a black woman, now you have two problems. You're black and you're a woman. If you're a black uh, lesbian woman, then now you have three problems and how those intersect show the, the more of these that you have, the more uh, oppressed you are. Uh, postmodernism is what they basically derive their their overall philosophical view. When it impacts the Christian church, there's ecumenicalism. Let's all get together. Uh, let's support each other. And so this is a major thing that is happening right now with a lot of evangelical. Some evangelicals have said if this goes another 10 years, we won't be able to recognize evangelicalism. And then, of course, the major evil is white privilege. Now, Cleon Skusen wrote a book back in the uh, 50s called The Naked Communist and outlines the methodology that should be used in order to tr transform uh, the United States so that it can become a socialist Marxist nation. He says, first of all, get control of the schools. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current, current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum, get control of the teachers' associations, Put the party line in textbooks, okay? So the textbooks will brainwash the students. Those who have been arrested in the uh, situation with the uh, CHOP area in Seattle, uh, the vast majority of those arrested were teachers. Uh, teachers are, have made up a large number of those who are involved in Antifa as well as some of the key players in uh, some of the other groups. Uh, 
Another thing he said was infiltrate the press, get control of book review assignments. I remember it was about 20 years ago I quit looking at the New York Times book reviews. Uh, infiltrate the press, get control of book review assignments, editorial writing, and policy-making positions. And so it's harder and harder today to find a press that is critical of whatever is going on today. There's no objectivity. They've all bought into the same worldview. And so they they ignore many things that are going on to keep people ignorant. Continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. An American communist cell was told to eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, substitute shapeless, awkward, and meaningless forms. Okay, get rid of anything that reflects realism and just put in things that are uh, uh, chaotic and don't express reality as uh, normative. Uh, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed with religion with social religion. That's why there's been such a battle for the Bible over the last 50 years, and it continues. But there's always been a battle over the Bible. It's just gotten worse. And the Southern Baptist Convention, the Lutheran uh, Missouri Synod, the uh, Presbyterian Church of America have been some of the more conservative denominations, and they're all coming under incredible assault today. Uh, <clears throat> discredit the Christians as being in, non-intellectuals. Uh, they're just people who need a religious crutch. Next, discredit the American Constitution by calling it inadequate, old-fashioned, out of step with modern needs, a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. So it leads towards internationalism, which violates the fourth divine institution of nationalism, and it attacks uh, the concept of uh, being law-abiding. And then finally, support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture, uh, education, social agencies, welfare programs, mental health clinics, etc. He also called for discrediting the FBI, which has taken place by the, uh, the discovery of uh, the whole uh, Russia collusion thing and uh, and Trump's collusion with Russia, and that has discredited a number of leaders in the FBI, not all of them. The rank and file is pretty solid, but it shows that the FBI has just become another tool of big government, and these leaders were involved in an attempt to overthrow uh, the results of an American uh, election that's called a coup, and by God's grace, that was stopped. Now, when we come to Black Lives Matter, we have to recognize that it has a worldview, an ideology. Patrice Cullors clearly states we have an ideology, and that ideology is Marxism. That means it's secular and it's atheist. Second, it means they've adopted cultural Marxist world uh, Marxist views. They've adopted identity politics. They deal with groups, not individuals. There's no respect for individuals. An individual can um, can have a number of different views, but he's part of a group, so therefore he's he's guilty of everything that they're putting onto that group. They've adopted a social justice ethic, which is not based on any absolute. 
and their methodology is really pragmatism. Whatever works, the end justifies the means. And in their ethics, they have rejected all six divine institutions. Remember, God is the one who established the divine institutions. He instituted them at the time of, of uh, uh, at different times. He instituted the first three at the time of creation. Uh, each individual, Adam was held accountable for his decisions. Eve was held accountable for his decisions. Even serpent, who was actually Satan, was held accountable for his decisions. Uh, uh, individual responsibility, marriage, and family were given uh, prior to the fall, all designed to promote productivity and to advance civilization. When they're not followed, civilization regresses. After the flood, he established government, he established nations, and he graciously called out Israel as a vehicle for his uh, revelation and redemption. These were given after the fall to restrain evil. We've looked at that extensively in our Thursday night study. So Black Lives Matters is built on all of these things in direct contradiction to the divine institutions that God established in contradiction to a Judeo-Christian worldview. As, we, as I pointed out, the reason that it came into existence, the putative reason, that is the alleged reason, was because there were uh, too many uh, young black men and blacks that were being killed by uh, police officers, by white police officers. And so the police were at war with the black community. And so you would expect that if that were true, that statistics, uh, statistics would bear that out. But as we'll see in this next chart, it does not. Here's a chart. <clears throat> that uh, I found out on the Internet. I sent this chart to Charlie Clough because when it comes to the uh, statistics and it comes to all the math involved in checking out and verifying this, that's beyond my pay grade. And somebody who is a graduate of MIT has the skills that I don't have to check it all out. And Charlie sent me quite a, uh, quite a chart today that he had developed on the basis of this, in the last 24 hours, he got out, and what he did was he looked at the, he went to the U.S. Census Bureau to get the number of uh, whites who were in America, the number of uh, whites, non-Latino, non-Hispanic, the number of blacks in America, and he went to the link that's at the bottom of this chart uh, for the FBI statistics on who was shot by whom, in uh, 2018. And what this shows is that in the first column, and what he discovered was that this is right within a very, very small margin of error, and it worked when he realized that Hispanics were included by this guy as part of the, the white classification. And so what this shows is that uh, the murder of black and white people in the U.S., in 2018 per 1 million members of the murderer's race. So the number of whites that were killed by blacks was 11.30% whites killed by blacks overall in the United States. The percent that were killed by 
uh, blacks that were killed by whites is 0.95 less than 1% of those who were killed by, uh, that were murdered, were blacks killed by whites. And those uh, whites killed by whites is about the same as whites killed by blacks. Uh, 10.84% or just under 11%. But the percentage of blacks killed by blacks is almost six times greater. It is 57.14%. Uh, and so it's important to look at facts. There's a lot of emotion, and there's a lot of emotion when you bring up these facts. And um, one of the things that I wanted to, to uh, point out in this is that I have a, a number of uh, friends and colleagues in the black community over the years, and as I have ministered to pastors in the black community uh, 10, 15 years ago, I was have heard stories in just private conversation with men, and they tell me about being somewhere on the way to somewhere else and being uh, pulled over, and they felt intimidated and harassed by police. And I'd say, well, how many times has this happened? I said, well, I get pulled over three or four times a year. I haven't gotten pulled over in, in but twice in the last 20 years. And... Uh, and so this just seems outrageous. It seems like there's a there's something going on. I can't dismiss it and say, well, well, <coughs> they're just making this up. Uh, it could be that because there's a certain amount of fear within the black community that these myths, you know, spread like wildfire, and so it scares everybody. And so then they they create some difficult situations. I don't know why it is, but I can't dismiss that. A lot of white people I know say, well, they're just making it up. No, they're not making it up. This is a real fear factor for a lot of especially young black males. But as I've talked to law enforcement officers, I have heard time and time again, and they have given me the details on how they are trained to deal with any kind of an interracial situation. If they are a white officer and they're pulling over a uh, a black driver, they're given all kinds of training as to what they can do, what they can't do. But we have to recognize that there are going to be uh, some rogue officers. There are racist pastors on both sides of the issue. I've known and have been told in private by black pastors that, Pastor, I really want you to come speak to my church, but they can't handle a white preacher. Basically saying, I can't come because I'm white. Now, that's racist. But I understand we all have certain biases, culture, whatever it may be. As part of our Christian growth, we have to overcome those things. And we have to recognize that we're one in the body, body of Christ. And so uh, there, are, uh, there are rogue police officers. There are corrupt uh, uh, drivers. There are people who lie about what happened when they saw a police officer. There are people who, there are police officers who lie about what happened when they pulled over a black, uh, a, a black driver. There's all kinds of things uh, that go on because of sin in the world. And because of that, uh, we recognize that bad things happen. And what's the saying? Bad things happen to good people. But you know what? There's no good people. 
What did Jesus say? When the rich young ruler came to him in Matthew 19, 16, and 17, the rich young ruler called him good teacher. And in verse 17, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. Bad things happen to bad people. And we're all, because of, of uh, the fact that we're all sinners, we're all bad people. The reality is, in God's grace and kindness, we don't get what we deserve 99.9% of the time. We deserve a whole lot worse than what we get because we're, uh, our heart is wicked and deceptive above all things who can know it. And so we have to recognize there are these, these things that, that, that happen. Now, if you listen to the media and you listen to Black Lives Matter, uh, they, are, they put forth the idea that we are living in an epidemic of racially biased police shootings. Now, is that true? If it's true, you would find that studies would indicate that, but no studies indicate that. There are numerous studies that you can go to. Uh, I have gone to a couple of different studies to get uh, information about this. Um, One study that was created by faculty at Michigan State University and the University of Maryland at College Park Uh, created a database of 917 officer-involved fatal shootings in 2015 from 650 police departments. Of those 917 officer-involved fatal shootings, 55% of the victims were white, 27% were black, and 19% were Hispanic. So that doesn't seem like it's out of control to me. Between 90 and 95% of the civilians shot by officers in 2015, those who were shot were attacking police or other citizens at the time that they were shot. That doesn't seem to me to be outrageous. 90% of those that were shot in these fatal shootings were armed with a weapon. So... You have a, these are the statistics. Now, I, I stand corrected if you can show other statistics. A 2015 Justice Department study of the Philadelphia Police Department found that black officers were 67% more likely than white officers to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black suspect. Let me say that again. 67% uh, black officers were 67% more likely than white officers to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black suspect. Hispanic officers were 145% more likely than white officers to mistakenly shoot an unarmed black suspect. What they concluded was that crime and suspect behavior, not race, determined most police actions. Research indicates that in 2019, police officers fatally shot 1,004 people, most of whom were armed and otherwise dangerous. Of that total, 235 were African Americans, about a quarter, about 25% of those killed, a ratio that remained stable since 2015. There are a number of other studies that have been done, 
and they all confirmed these same things. So what do we conclude from all of this? First of all, that every African-American life is significant because they're in the image and likeness of God. We're not like unbelievers who, and we're not like Black Lives Matter Marxists who believe in evolution as the basis. Evolution, Darwinian evolution, is inherently racist. But that's who these people are that are leading this. They have adopted a worldview that is inherent, built on a philosophy that is inherently racist, a view of origins that is inherently racist. So every African-American is important. They have value, meaning, and purpose are in the image of God. Second, any injustice is unfortunate and should be addressed in an ideal world. But we don't live in an ideal, wor- ideal world. And as many times in the history of mankind as one group or another have tra- sought to overturn one government to replace it with what they thought would be a more ideal government, it has never worked. We have never even come close to living in an ideal world uh, because of sin. And as Christians, we must recognize that we live in a fallen world where bad things happen. As I've watched the news since the George Floyd death, which was indeed tragic, any death is tragic, that death was tragic, but it was used by many people not just to be a a point of sadness and grief over perhaps the claim is it was a miscarriage of justice. I withhold my judgment. I learned this a long time ago. I will wait till all the facts are out and all the facts are not out yet. I refuse to be forced to jump to conclusions. But what, um, what we recognize is that, that there's been so much that has distorted that through the riots, through the destruction, property destruction, the question I ask is how does the destruction of private property, the destruction of businesses, there were people who were killed in the chop zone of Seattle. They lost their lives. What kind of justice validates that? What kind of justice says that that's okay? Not a biblical view of justice whatsoever. I wanted to say something about Antifa. I know I'm running out of time. Started a couple of minutes late. Antifa is described by a Gatestone Institute paper, Antifa Part 1. Antifa can be described as a transnational insurgency movement that endeavors, often with extreme violence, to subvert liberal democracy with the aim of replacing global capitalism with communism. So they have the same aim as Black Lives Matter's founders, and that is to uh, do away with the capitalism in America and to replace it with communism. Antifa's stated long-term objective, both in America and abroad, is to establish a communist world order. In the United States, Antifa's immediate aim is to bring about the demise of the Trump administration. Matthew Knopf, in his book, An Outsider's Outsider's Guide to Antifa, says the basic philosophy of Antifa focuses on the battle between three forces, fascism, racism, and capitalism, all three of which are interrelated according to Antifa, with fascism being considered the final expression or stage of capitalism. Capitalism means being a means to oppress and racism being an oppressive mechanism related to fascism. And so when we look at Antifa, 
we see that it is like Black Lives Matter. It is a highly networked organization. A third, like uh, or second, like uh, BLM, the enemy is law enforcement. Uh, for them, uh, it is law and order that is the enemy. For their method is to create chaos and disorder uh, to achieve their end. The fourth, or third, the basic uh, philosophy of Antifa focuses on the battle between these elements, and that is Marxism, because in this battle of thesis versus antithesis, you're going to reach a new synthesis and move the ball down the field towards full Marxism. And their basic basic ideology is, like Black Lives Matter, as I pointed out the last time, they oppose heteronormativity, that is heterosexual marriage, as normal. They oppose it. They oppose patriarchy, that is that the father is the head of the home. They uh, oppose nationalism. They oppose capitalism. And they oppose free markets. In other words, they oppose all of the divine institutions just as Black Lives Matters does. Well, I want to briefly cover social justice. I don't want to take any more time on this. I get tired of talking about this stuff that's going on, but it has to be out there. So give me a few minutes and I'll I'll wrap this up. John MacArthur. Now, I'm quoting John MacArthur, and somebody's going to write me and say, well, don't you know that John MacArthur went uh, sort of violated his own statement? Yes, I know, but that doesn't mean his statement's wrong. That just means that, you know, he failed. Uh, he, uh, after this, he, uh, in this time when he formulated his view on social, on social justice, he, uh, he, he identified a bunch of uh, evangelical leaders, and then about a year later, they all got together and had a conference together and act like they were old buddies. But his statement is good. He said, today, critical race theory, feminism, intersectional theory, LGBT advocacy, progressive immigration policies, animal rights, and other left-wing political causes are all actively vying for evangelical acceptance under the rubric of social justice. They want to get inside the church. Not every evangelical leader currently talking about social justice supports the full spectrum of radical causes, of course. Most, for the moment at least, do not. But they are using the same rhetoric and rationale of victimhood and oppression that is relentlessly employed by secularists who are aggressively advocating for all kinds of deviant lifestyles and ideologies. That's why I say that when, when Black Lives Matter is a slogan, it's a great slogan. It, it, it really hits because it, it, it resonates with people. But because it's tied to an organization that is Marxist, you can't use it or repeat it because then you're validating the worldview of the organization which is anti-Christian. That is why I keep saying that African-American lives are important, significant, have meaning and purpose. MacArthur ends by saying, indeed, as social justice rhetoric has gained currency among evangelicals, just about every cause that is deemed politically correct in the secular world is steadily gaining momentum among evangelicals. They're conforming to the world. 
He says evangelicals seldom explicitly define what they mean by social justice. Let me tell you, I went back to read F.A. Hayek's uh, second volume, which is all about social justice. And in his introduction, he says, I've been studying this for 10 years and nobody has the same definition. Uh, Social justice is in amorphous terms. It means whatever anybody wants it to mean. So uh, that that's the problem. But he gets down here and he says, countless critics have pointed out that the rhetoric of social justice is deeply rooted in Gramscian Marxism, same as Black Lives Matter. For many decades, social justice has been employed as political shorthand by radical leftists as a way of calling for equal distribution of wealth, advantages, privileges, and benefits up to and including pure Marxist socialism. See, this is very much a part of the whole ideology of Black Lives Matter and Antifa. So a quick critique, biblical justice begins in the word. Social justice begins with society, sociology, political theories, but not with the Bible. Second, social justice theory denies a literal, historical, exegetical hermeneutic. In fact, it is... Uh, it rejects the idea of of the sufficiency of Scripture. It is adding to uh, so that Scripture misses things. Third, social justice is based on identifying disadvantaged or oppressed groups and making everything about the group. A couple of weeks ago when I talked about this in the Thursday night class, I pointed out this sociology textbook, Race, Class, and Gender, uh, an Integrated Study, and it's all about pitting one group against another. And so you have titles like Constructing Race and Creating White Privilege, How Jews Became White Folks, uh, The Social Construction of Sexuality. You just thought it had something to do with DNA and biology. Um, masculinity is Homophobia, The Invention of heteros- Heterosexuality. What we learn is that God judges people individually, not as a class. When you appear at the judgment seat of Christ, God is going to evaluate your life, not what group you were in. He's not going to say, well, were you uh, from the oppressed class or were you from the oppressing class? Were you a... Uh, are you white? Were you black? Were you brown? God doesn't care. It's what you as an individual decide. In Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-nine and 30, we read... In those days, talking about in the time of the future kingdom, in those days they shall say no more, quote, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. See, this was a proverb that was actually wrong, that because the fathers did something wrong, the sons suffered. But in the kingdom, everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Punishment for what you do, not for what the group does. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Social justice denies personal responsibility, and it is built on victimology. It's not my fault. God, it is the woman you gave to me. I am just a victim. Social justice calls for a redistribution of resources from those who as a class have unjustly acquired them to those who were oppressed. Now, two weeks ago, I pointed out this thing that went up at the Smithsonian on their website. It's been taken down. 
It's all about white culture. And there what we learn is that white culture is defined not as white culture existed prior to Christianity, but what what Western European civilization became because of Christianity. So therefore, what they mean by white culture is the Bible. What they mean by white culture is biblical truth. And so uh, they're against rugged individualism, the first divine institution. They're against the nuclear family and family structure, the third divine institution. They're against uh, uh, marriage because they are going to promote uh, homosexuality. Uh, They say that uh, scientific method is whiteness, history, studying the history of England and Europe, that that is where Christianity developed its highest forms, uh, that that is wrong. Uh, The Protestant work ethic, labor, part of the first divine institution, that that's wrong, that's just whiteness. Christianity being the norm, that's wrong. Anything Judeo-Christian other than the Judeo-Christian is foreign. Everything other than Judeo-Christianity is idolatry. It's not whiteness. It came out of the Bible, God's revelation. Status, power, and authority, wealth is value, etc. We went through all of these, and they promote the LGBTQ movement, so they're against all of the divine institutions. Plus, you have these these organizations like Antifa and Black Lives Matters and all the others that are built on Marxism and liberation theology are all connected with Palestinian liberation theology. They're all cousins, and therefore they're all anti-Israel and anti-Semitic. That violates the sixth divine institution. Biblical justice emphasizes equality before the law. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. There's that word, uh, Sadiq, again. And then the next thing that is emphasized is justice. it involves impartiality, Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17. Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you bring to me and I will hear it. That word for judgment is mishpat. That's the word that says do justly in uh, Micah 6, 8. Romans 13, 7 tells us that there are to be, there's to be, uh, uh, <clears throat> each one is to be rendered according to what he is due. The individual render therefore to all their due. Uh, taxes, customs, fear, honor, uh, there must each one be treated individually. That's Romans 13, uh, 13, 7. And then uh, in Leviticus 24, 17, uh, every uh, punishment should be proportional to the crime. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. You shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. Everything must be proportional. And then in Leviticus uh, 19.6, justice is conformity to an absolute standard. 
Uh, you shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hen. That means they have to be a, a, an absolute standard for everything. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In conclusion, what we see is these movements that are causing chaos and social disruption and are deceiving people are sadly and unfortunately, they are anti-Christian. And there are many Christians who are being deceived by these things, deceived by social justice, uh, deceived by cultural Marxism, deceived by the promise of utopia, uh, that there's some sort of, uh, of uh, uh, way in which the government is holding back and you can have all these wonderful things if it weren't for a certain group that's oppressing you. And this is a distortion of history, and, is, and it is completely contrary to the Bible. You do not, you cannot be a Christian consistently and hold to any of these values that come from a non-Christian worldview. And we need to pray for people. We need to try to help them understand. We, they, they may at times seem like enemies, but we are to, uh, in gentleness and kindness and prayer, try to win them over and help them. We have to be careful to recognize that there are some who cannot be helped, don't want to be helped, or too arrogant, and so we don't want to cast our pearls before swine. Uh, that's what Jesus said. You just don't waste your time. You have to have the wisdom to do that. But on the other hand, you have to have the wisdom not to antagonize them, not to not to create battles and, and know how to uh, gently, carefully work with them. Uh, there are better ways to win battles than frontal assaults. And unfortunately, I know too many men who only can think of an absolute uh, frontal assault, in which case they will get nothing but a Pyrrhic victory. In other words, uh, they may win, but they're going to uh, lose. They may win the argument, but they will lose the conversion and a friendship. We have to spend a lot of time in prayer that God will enable us and help us to wisely win others to the biblical view. Father, thank you for this time. Help us to understand what's going on around us, to have the skills to be like the uh, men of Issachar, to understand the times and to be able to identify what is going on and to be able to give an answer uh, to turn away wrath. And Father, we pray that you would give us the humility and the wisdom and the skill to do this. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.